1: in the New Testament days there were hand-picked men that God sovereignly selected as his church planters and they had to meet certain requirements. And it's beautiful as we studied that and I encourage you to get the CD and the message because there's a lot of technicolor and surround sound of value in knowing about those planters. But once the planters were selected... And the next thing that happened to be, there had to be what we call the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's when the church was born, when the Holy Spirit came. And we talked about it being a sight and sound show, so to speak. And yet it wasn't even about the sight and sound sound. that kind of drew and saw that something supernatural was happening. It was about the Spirit. And then we talked about that once the church was being launched at that very time, the very first sermon to the church... We dissected that because once we learned it, what that sermon was like, then pretty much that's the template of most often other sermons would be like, although it might change a little bit, not so much in culture, but maybe in needs of the people that would be present. But it would start with an introduction. It would have a main point. It would include the death and resurrection of Christ. It would have the gospel in there, an opportunity for people to trust Christ, a plea for them to realize the consequences if you don't. And all that was the very first sermon that was preached. And now we get into what is often referred to maybe as what would be the purpose of the church. In other words, why did they exist? What did they do? What did the first church look like? And maybe if I could use some earthly illustrations, you'll see why it's important for us to spend time. And I wish I could give many more weeks on this one passage alone because it is so rich. A number of years ago, Carol and I had the opportunity to go to Siberia. We often go on these mission trips and many times we go to third world countries. We've been to Albania, we've been to Croatia. This year we'll be going to China, not that China's third world, but there are challenges because we'll be going deep in country. But when we were going to Siberia, uh, we knew that would be a challenge. It was an overnight flight from LA. It went over the top of the planet all the way into Moscow. And then from Moscow, we took a flight into Chita, Siberia. From there, we took an 18-hour train ride further into Siberia to Yolanda Day. And they were immersed in the people. We lived with the people. That means we also ate what they ate. I can't pronounce what I ate. I I I only recognized one on one meal and they gave us a half a potato. Carol had a half a potato and I had a half a potato at this house of a Christian. Couldn't speak their language so we had to point and kind of talk, you know, like, The room, bathroom kind of thing. And when they showed us this, I found out that he worked with the military as a security guard and that that was the only food they had and they cut up the potatoes just for Carol and I to have the best While they ate something else. I'm saying all that to say this, that after two and a half weeks of in-country eating or not eating some of this stuff, um, we lost a lot of weight. So finally we're ready to go back to the United States of America and we were going to the airport and we had enough time and we drove by a good old-fashioned... Mickey D's, McDonald's, who saw the Golden Arches. I knew one thing when I saw the Golden Arches that the food is probably going to be very much the same there as it is in the United States. Probably high cholesterol, high fat, bad for you, but at least I would know it would be consistent. And sure enough, we went in there and we ate it. It's just like our McDonald's here. Maybe an item or two would be culturally in the ethnic group where you are. We have that here in the island too, some of the Portuguese food they have with some of the McDonald's. But the bottom line is those McDonald's follow a particular notebook, a protocol of what the food must taste like and to be like, so when you go there, you'll be a part of that. That is their template, and that's somewhat of a safety, and if you've ever done that, you know exactly what I mean when you go to those chains. Another way to look at it might be That when you're not feeling well and you go to the doctors, one of the first things they check is your temperature to see if you have a fever. And they generally use a standard of 98.6 or pretty close to that to see if you have a fever. Because if you have a fever, they're going to now begin to do different things with you to lower the fever because of the danger of that fever lingering or um, increasing. So they want to work. So there's a standard. Now I'm using those two illustrations to tell you that there is a standard for the church and for the churches to look like. It seems to be, now that I've pastored for 40 years, that there are many seminars. There are all over the country, literally all over the world, about what churches should look like, what they should be doing, what methods you should try. I have not been to all of them, but I've been to enough of them to know that they are a little different. They have different styles, different music, different ways they present it. They have different ministry ideas. They have different philosophies etc. I've got the notebooks. I've been to all of them. And frankly, when I moved to the island here to be your pastor eight years ago, almost eight years ago, I chose then not to go to a a church seminar that was going to tell me how to uh, develop or grow a church. For me, that was not healthy. The reason it wasn't healthy for me is when I went to those places, I would say, I want to do that. In my past churches, I would grab it, and I would try to do it, and I would... I would kind of throw sand in the gears of what God was doing here and it took me longer to undo the damage that I was doing by taking from what they were teaching at these seminars. The second problem that it caused within me was I got very, very discouraged. I would see these great, huge mega churches and all the stuff that they did and I'd said, I want to do that and we got to change this. We want to be like them. And I looked, I could never do it with these people. They're they're a bunch of, you know, nincompoops. They'll never be able to follow this. So I began to judge and have a lot of pride and I would get down over this kind of stuff. And I said, you know, when I... to Hawaii, I'm glad I went. I might have picked up a couple of little methods here and celebrate what God's doing other places. But when I come to this island, I only want to do what God wants us to do right here and figure out what methods He would like us to use here. And so the church is basically turned around in the eight years that we have been here. And it is not because I have borrowed from other seminars around the country or the world on how to do church growth. Now, let me give you a little parentheses. I'm not saying you ought not to go to those you preacher guys out there, you guys go to the ministry. But when you go, be very, very careful because Satan can do a number on you and you can begin to own that. First of all, the people that are in that church are not going to be the people that are in your church. The pastor of that church will never have the same gifting that you have. Their area in which they're serving will not be the same area that you're serving in. So when you try to do that, you're trying to make something happen that really is a little bit of an anomaly. So why do you go to these things? Fellowship with one another, celebrate what God is doing there, and maybe pick up a point or two. My suggestion would be it'd be far better financially and time-wise to immerse yourself in God's Word, particularly the, the formation of the New Testament church under the first-mentioned principle of hermeneutics to really know what it was really like. Get those basics down. Vince Lombardi, the great football coach, was asked by a, a, a newspaper reporter one time, how come you have the winningest team in football? Is it because you do the basics? He says, no, we don't do the basics. We just do the basics the best. And that's a great truth right there. We just need to go back to the basics. Some people say practice makes perfect. I don't think practice makes perfect. I think perfect practice makes perfect, if you know what I mean, if you're following the model. And so that's why we're going here. So it's not going to tell you, should you have cushion chairs or pews? Should you have folding chairs? Should you be in the round? Should you meet at 1030 in the morning? What should your sound equipment look like? What color should it be painted? What should be the architectural structure of it? All of those are kind of add-ons, and I'm not saying they're not important, but sometimes we spend so much time in meetings trying to decide what we want our building to look like and what we want our, our outreach methods to be like that we forget the heart of it is the heart of it. Did you catch that? And so I want to make sure that our hearts are right and turn toward Him. And I'm not preaching at you. I'm, this is kind of a checkup from the neck up for me in my own leadership of you is your shepherd so I'm leading you in the right way so let's go back to this passage and it's um, going to begin at verse 41 and I gave you just a couple of the five of the purposes that we found in this passage verse 41 kind of sets the the direction of it when it says so then so then what Peter just gave a lot of words. He preached a lot. He kept exhorting them, be saved from this generation. In other words, be different, go to the Lord, the rest of the context upward. Then he says this, so then the result was those who had received his word, which would be God's word because he was speaking more scripture in his sermon than he did his own word, were baptized. That meant they came to faith. They were publicly identified with Christ, especially as being Jews. That was a big thing. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls, And obviously, they were added to the church. Now, one thing you need to know, there's two levels of church. We already covered this. You have the local body, which you will join and be a part of. Go public with it. Make your commitment. A lot of other things involved in that. But then you have the universal church. Now, this was the church at Jerusalem... But we don't see a lot about membership. And maybe that's another topic for me to discuss later on. But for right now, I think this was 3,000 were added to the body of Christ, the New Testament universal church that was beginning there in Jerusalem. So you had a little bit of invisible, invisible happening all at one time. That's the first church. Now it goes on a little bit further. And we now pick it up from where we were last week. What did we learn from last week? Well, we learned that the New Testament church, it was enhanced by walking in God's Word. They were really committed to God's Word. Go a little bit further and you'll see in verse 42. They, those 3,000, probably more, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine. In other words, it was important for them to learn and to follow the teaching. It wasn't so much the theology as it was the teaching, although the teaching included theology. But in order for the people to respond in obedience or first belief and then obedience to the teaching, that meant the apostles had to teach it. So you had two things going on at the same time. But they were continually giving themselves over to the teaching of the word and how important that is. And some of those key words would be principles, but also practice and how important it is to know what the word says and then to do it no matter the cost. The second we learn is that it was engaged in relationships. You know, it's not just me speak, you listen. Probably the greatest things are done when you're doing it together. Years ago when we were on the writing team for Promise Keepers, we were a part of the the writing team that dealt with the small group men's studies. And what we came to the conclusion was three things had to happen for a healthy group under the premise that you will grow better, stronger, and sometimes faster in a small group setting than you really will if you just come to a, a rally like this might be or a conference where you come and sit and listen. One, you'd have the Word of God. Number two, you'd have prayer. And I say, Word of God goes on top of your devotional booklets or your teaching books. Word of God. Then you'd have prayer. But number three would be healthy relationships with one another. I believe this is all about relationships. And you'll see it as we open up this a little bit more. Because to have relationship isn't just a casual friend or I see or I sit with you. It means what you have as a need becomes my need. And if I can meet it, I'll meet your need. Because someday I'll have a need. Now your needs are met. Now you can help me my needs when my needs are here. So again, it's a costly thing of commitment to one another. And the key words for that would be people and personalities will be different. And of course, there's a partnership. When you see partnership, I want you to think in terms of commitment to one another, a realization that we have to give and take with each other on this thing. It doesn't mean that we're gonna condone their sin, but we love them too much to leave them in sin. So we're gonna confront them, but we're gonna do it in love. We're gonna pray for them, but we're not gonna separate from them. So there's a partnership going on. Now some new material, and this is what I wanna close with today. This uh, New Testament church that's our model going back to, what was that church like? At least in the principles, it was enlarged by serving others. This church became a church that really began to serve other people. And look, if you will, back to the passage, because you're going to see how rich this was. Go a little bit further now, if you will, to verse 44. And it says here, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many, was as verse 43, and wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, not the people doing the signs and wonders, the apostles were, because that was their sign to prove they were an apostle, verse 44. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. So if you have your Bible, you might want to underline the word all. That's the idea. They're all doing it together, that fellowship, that idea of coming together to serve one another. And then it goes on to say, who believed. So that meant they were believers in Christ. This is made up of those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. We're together. You might want to underline the word together so you can say, all were together. And then it said, all things in common. So you can really feel the weight of knowing that together we are here. We're going to rise and fall on each other, not just on leadership. Verse 45 then says, And they began selling their property and possessions. And we're sharing them, their property and possessions, or what they made off of them, with all. But not just anybody all, but with all, and then it qualifies it, as anyone might have need. So technically we could say that this was not a pre-communist or a pre-socialist model. Now, some of you might think, well, here they did. They sold everything they had. They put it in one big pool. And if you had need, you'd go and you'd take out from that pool what you wanted. So everybody had everything in common. So it's either socialism or pre-communism going on. And this was taught back in the 60s pretty much when you had the Jesus movement, movement and those communes were going on. And they were thinking, this is the way you really need to do that. There's many reasons why that's not what it says. First of all, in the actual Greek grammar in there, it doesn't mean that it was a particular act that they did it, but they did it when there was a need. So it was a process that happened back and forth. Secondly, it would violate 1 Corinthians 16 that says that every week you're to bring something as a gift so that when there was an offering taken, you'd be provided for. If you go back to Acts again and you see Ananias and Sapphira, they were judged not because they didn't sell. They weren't judged just merely because they kept back something for themselves. That's not why they were wiped out. They were wiped out because they lied about it. So lying was the issue, not what they kept back. So this is not socialism. So now how do you practically apply this? Simply this, if in our church you know someone, watch this now, that has a basic need of life that is not met, and you have an abundance that God has allowed you to have or programmed you to have, you know that you have it as a loan. It belongs to him. You're just managing it. And the Lord now may be laying it upon your heart to provide for someone who has a, here's a phrase, basic need of life. Now the question is, is what becomes a basic need of life? Now... I think I could say food. I think that's a little legitimate. I think some form of healthy liquid, water. Do they have food and water? We could throw the term shelter in there, but I think that's a kind of a question. How safe is this? Is it healthy for them? Is it something that they can feel warm and comfortable in? Is it a place where they don't have to feel like they're going to be stolen or, or, or abused in what they have? Is it something that would be shelter over their bodies, like the kind of clothing that they need for what they have as a basic need of life? I'll throw this in for free and let you talk about it on the way home. Would a vehicle be a part of a basic need of life when and where and what? Now, you debate that and you come up with that. But the bottom line is that there'll come times when there's a basic need in life and they were meeting that need. Do you see where it says here in the passage? Go back to it. It says, and these are two interesting words as I looked at it when it said here, they were selling their property and possessions. It sounds like the same thing and he's kind of double talking or there's a little redundancy. If you go back to the original language, when you hear the, the term here, property, this would be what I'll call your, your hard permanent assets. These would be land or a building that you would have. So it would be p- literal property that you would have. So they were willing to liquidate part of or all of, of what they had to be able to provide for those that would have need. Now, again, parentheses, I don't have time to unpack this. But you've got to take yourself back rewind your, your DVD in history to the New Testament church time. These were Jews that are now coming to faith in Christ, predominantly Jews. Their Jewish families were disowning them, and when they went public with their faith, there was also these deaths. that were The Jewish family were kind of treating all the, the new Jewish believer brothers and sisters, moms and dads were getting saved as if they died, which meant they were cut out of all the will, they were kicked out of all of the houses. They were basically homeless street persons back then. Then you throw a lot of other stuff, economics, where they were fired from their jobs, they didn't have work, they had a lot of problems, so there was a lot of poverty. But God also, in his sovereign will, had those who were saved, getting saved, that had possessions and property, so that now he brings them all together. Now, I wish I had days to preach this, but I believe so much that God in his wisdom was doing this so that there will be a healthy dependence upon one another. The operative word isn't dependence or one another, it's the word healthy dependence. In other words, we don't have a codependent relationship. We don't have a dependent relationship, but it's a healthy dependent relationship with one another because that draws us together as mikasa, sukasa. We're all in the ohana together. And God was doing that and reminding them that they needed to do that. And they did that. Now, the word possessions here, different than property, just would mean those loose items. You would call it, uh, they would put it on Craigslist if they had a Craigslist in those days. They would have a flea market or a garage sale. And I don't know what they had back then. Maybe they had a tent sale or something. Maybe they did. Maybe that's the first tent sale. I don't know. But that whatever they had, they were liquidating it or providing it for those who had need. Now, that is the sign of a healthy church. Now, why would it be such an important thing for them to do? Well, obviously, because God wants to relieve the suffering. That's very important. That's part of us to do that. Something that we need to do. Care for the poor. They'll always be with us, yada, yada. He wants us to do that. But there's something else. When the body of Christ is healthier and they're not scrambling just for their very next meal and they're receiving from one another these needs being met, it does draw you together. It now allows you more energy, mental, emotional, and social to reflect on the apostles' teaching for them to be able to continue growing, but also to reflect upon, look at the others don't have and we now can help them. Watch this, watch this. When that's all happening, a sovereign God is providing for these people and they're seeing miracles happen. It's not that somebody jumps up from the dead. That's not the issue. The issue is that God will take care of us whatever need we have when we need it, if it's a legitimate need. Take it a step further. Later on in the same passage you're going to see where that people were watching the church and there was awe by all these people and then God was adding tons of people to the church and I can only imagine those that were peering through the windows of these fellowships, so to speak, and they're seeing what was happening with the poor ones and the wealthy ones and what they were sacrificing for the poor people and they weren't marginalizing them but they were doing it for the cause of Christ. People were saying, I want that. I want to be a part of that. How do I do that? And it's not going to be because you build a bigger building and you have better music. It's going to be because you have better people that have a heart turned toward the Lord. And they said, you know what made you that way? It had to be something supernatural. You can't do that. And they would say, sure enough, sure enough, the Holy Spirit came inside of us, and we yielded to him. We'll follow the word right here, and things began to happen. See, I know if you open your Bible, it says Acts of the Apostles, so does mine, but that's not what it says in Scripture. This is what man called it, Acts of the Apostles. If it was me, I wouldn't call it Acts of the Apostles. My opinion, I'd call it Acts of the Holy Spirit all through this book and what he did in the lives of those who are willing to yield to him. Well, there's a lot more we could say about that, but I wanted you to know it's It's going to happen. The church will be enlarged when we decide to serve others in their particular needs. And before I go to my next point, I've got to tell you that this church, I'm like preaching to the choir, I think you guys are already doing this for the most part. I don't see everybody's need, and I don't see everybody doing for one another, but I know it's getting done. I, I, y'all look good. You, y'all look pretty fed, you know. You don't, you're not starving, you know, so you're doing all right. And there may be a few out there. I'm sure we're missing some on the beach, but, but really, in this group right here, in the, as we're growing, we're pretty well taking care of one another. Why am I then doing this? Well, for one reason, those of you that are going to go to another church, look to see. Don't just check out the cleanliness of the bathrooms. Check out some of these other things, although a clean bathroom is important. It shows that you care for one another. You know what I'm saying? But back to this, you want to see, are they really caring for the brotherhood? Do you really see that need and they're willing to sacrifice for the needs of other people? Are they doing that? Some of you, you're saying, I'm doing all this. I didn't realize why. You're doing it because the Holy Spirit's taken over and you've allowed them to do that and how great it is. So I want to just bless you again. I'm so blessed by you. And those of you that are still on the outside, just get with the program. You can never outgive God. And when it comes to you, give it back to somebody else. Regift, we call it. When God gives you something, use it. When you're done with it, give it to somebody else. Pass it on, pass it on. There's joy in that. Alright, let's look at number four. This church was also enriched with worship. It's kind of salt and peppered all through here, and I'm so glad that it is because. It kind of lets you know that worship isn't something we compartmentalize. Worship is something that comes from the heart and it's everything that we do. And it may show up at times when we're praying. It may show up times when they're praising. It may show up times when we're filling holes in the parking lot. All right, let's look here, if you will, at verse 42 again. Just the first part it says, And they were continually devoting themselves to... And then you could go dot, dot, dot. And you can now break this up a little bit further. What were they committing themselves to, devoting themselves to? Go to verse 46. It says, Day by day continuing with one mind in the temple. Now, they did a lot of stuff in the temple, but part of it was worship. I don't think that's the big point here, but the point is that they did it with one mind. By the way, let me pause for a moment. It's, um, it starts with the mind and the heart before it starts with the, the voice. And so they were doing it in their heart. They were doing it together in their with one mind. A lot of times when churches are fractured, it's fractured from the inside out of a person's life. And it goes on to say a little bit further. With the same mind, they were together. I love that. And then it says, "...in breaking bread from house to house." So that meant they went public in the temple, but they also brought it down into something that was more smaller, was a little smaller, house to house." Some people like to say that was the first cell groups, the first small group ministries. I think it's quite likely that's true. I think the New Testament church, they may have rallied at some major location when it was really large, but for, for the most part, I think the Jerusalem church had little house places all around. But the phrase I wanted you to see, though, was the breaking of bread. When I did this study through that phrase, breaking of bread, I had to take it through Luke, who was the uh, writer, not the author, but the writer of Luke and Acts. And then I had to take that phrase to other parts of the New Testament. And I have come to the conclusion until I am shown something else, that this is referred to as communion, all right? And the reason I believe this was as communion, not just they had a meal together at someone's house, but I believe that they were actually doing the communion is because, if you remember, when Jesus was uh, instituting the Lord's Supper, he then took the bread and he broke the bread, all right? Now, there's nothing magical about breaking the bread. It's just what he did to distribute it to one another, He didn't say, this is my body which was broken for you. That's not in the Greek. This is my body which is for you. All right, that's in the Greek. It was broken, but not really broken because no bone of his body could be broken. So it was more shredded. So I don't want to make too big of a point. But he broke the bread to distribute it to one another. That little phrase then is taken over throughout Scripture as when was the phrase of breaking of bread in the context of communion. So that's why I would think this would be communion. Another reason is because this is coming shortly after the Lord had communion, shortly after that that the Lord had communion. So as you see all this happening, you're now seeing, do this in remembrance of me, all right? I love that. Till death, till he comes. And so they were doing the communion. So why do I get the worship part? Well, they were having that time of worship. Now, I'm not here to parse, do we do it once a week, once a day, every time do we meet, do we have it with pizza and Coke? You know, I, I, I... I frankly think it ought to be with with juice. I think it ought to be with unleavened bread. I think it ought to be often because it says it's often. But it doesn't say you have to do it every single day, every single week, etc. But you need to do it often enough. And I think it is healthy. Why would you want to do it Why do you want to do it? Stay with me on this. When you're doing this properly, you should be remembering the Lord's death, past, till he comes future. So it's all about him. It's communing with him. And it's doing this with your heart Right. To make sure it's pure, to make sure that you're doing it without bitterness and, and, and sin in your life.
0: You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible.